So welcome to all saints on this Christ the King Sunday, a day where we celebrate and intentionally celebrate the profound meaning of the kingship of Christ. When Christ is king, his servants are authorized to powerfully reign. And when Christ is king, we are humbly able to serve. That's what Christ the King means, powerfully reigning and humbly serving. Such profound meaning and wisdom to be learned in this subject. And so I invite you to open up your Bibles, if you have them with you, or your bulletins, to the Gospel passage this morning. We will be looking at Luke chapter 23, verses 35 to 43. And in the remaining minutes, I would like for us to consider three things. Our hearts, number one. Secondly, his heart. And thirdly, living under the kingship of Christ's cross. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, may we see you as king this morning. Jesus, may we see you as king May we grasp the profound meaning of your kingship. May we powerfully reign and humbly serve. May we live under the kingship of your cross. And as we see you, Lord, may you rekindle in our hearts a love for you. So that we might reign and that we might humbly serve. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. So how must we be raised into heavenly places with Christ? How must we receive that immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? We must live under the kingship of Christ. We must see Christ as king. The scene that's brought before us is of a king, a cross, and criminals. At first glance, one might think that the only criminals are those hanging beside Christ on their own crosses. But all of these characters, with the exception of Christ, are criminals. All of them, whether they are the people, the rulers, or the soldiers are committing grossly unjust acts. You see how they're proving themselves as condemned? Christ alone is the only innocent one. He's not condemned, but he's enthroned as king. This is his enthronement. This is the fullness of time. This is also Christ's atonement. This is where some are eternally condemned and others are eternally comforted. We read of the four characters in this passage who are condemned, not two, not three, but four. They're not simply the criminals in this passage. They're the people. They're the rulers. And they're the soldiers. See, Christ is the Savior of the world. All are condemned unless... We be saved by him. In verse 35, we read of the people 
and how they stood by watching. They've not been actively pursuing Christ's death, but they were not innocent. They were in need of salvation. We're told that they watched as an innocent man was brutally beaten and murdered. They watched as God himself took their place and punishment. They watched as Christ was enthroned as king. And they were judged guilty and condemned. While they may have been passive bystanders, they were in need of a savior. They were not innocent, but those who were condemned. Christ, you see, is the once and for all sacrifice. The negative conjunction here in verse 35 does not speak of the people's innocence as much as it speaks of the progressive hostility of the human heart, human heart toward the Savior of the world. We see this progression with the characters, don't we? You see, these people are witnesses of the Savior of the world, and they're put on trial, aren't they, by the King of Kings. Christ is not on trial here. Neither is he condemned, but enthroned to judge all who are guilty. We also read in verse 35 of how the rulers scoffed as, at Christ and said, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Not only do these rulers have greater power, but they also demonstrate a greater degree of hostility to Christ. They scoffed at him and entertained themselves at his expense. They knew of God's covenant of the prophesied Messiah, yet they did not believe Listen to their words. They knew of the prophesied Messiah, but they did not believe. You see, they proved themselves as enemies of God. They proved themselves as condemned. These rulers were men of power and affluence. For them, salvation was simply self-interest. And look at the soldiers in verse 36 and 37. They mocked him offered him sour wine and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. They made light of the matter. They turned his most serious, this most serious situation into a laughing matter and presumed to know about truth and power. They were filled with pride and audacity. They didn't know real truth. They didn't know real power. Like victims of trauma, They were searching for the next high, as soldiers often do. They were coping, not healing. And in this instance, it was about making light of the most serious event in human history. And lastly, we read of the criminals. The first criminal is described as railing at Christ in verse 39. This word railing is associated with being Severely angry. This criminal was consumed with himself, you see. He asks, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Perhaps he thought that he could motivate Christ by making him angry. But Christ is not like him. Christ is not self-interested and self-consumed or even condemned. Christ is holy and good and lovely. And then we see the second criminal in verse 40. 
we are told that he rebuked the first criminal with a sobering, humble, and honest statement. He knew death was imminent for both of them. That they were receiving their due reward for their deeds. And that Christ was not like them, for he says that Christ has done nothing wrong. You see, this repentant criminal is condemned. He is condemned by rulers and soldiers and even by the crowd. But he is not condemned by King Jesus. You see, after he, believe, he pleads to Christ that he remember him, Jesus promises that today he will be with him in paradise. Though this repentant criminal is condemned by all accounts, he is granted mercy by the King of Kings. You see, these criminals are in stark contrast from each other. One is angry and self-absorbed, seeking to save himself. The other is humble, honest, contrite, and repentant, seeking salvation. I wonder, who might we identify with? Are we like the people? Are we oblivious, reluctant, afraid, and indifferent? Are we unwilling to risk our self-interest for the sake of honoring the glory of God? Are we like the rulers? Has our social standing corrupted our calculus? Do we simply scoff at the ways of the Almighty? Like the rulers, do we know of God's promise but not attend to Him? Are we too preoccupied with self-interest, peer pressure, and social standing? Or are we like the soldiers? Is there no sobriety and seriousness? Is everything lighthearted, even the salvation of our souls? Do we place too much confidence in the sword and presume that we know what truth and power is? Are we plenty with pride and see not our hearts? Or are we like that of the first criminal who presumes that God is like him, consumed and motivated by anger and self-interest? Are we like him? One who neither fears God nor fears man, but only fears his own appetites and interests? Or are we like that repentant criminal who rebukes sin, is honest about the condemned state of his soul, fears and professes Christ as God, and pleads for no reward, but only his mercy? Are we silent or are we confessional? Are we proud or are we contrite? Do we humbly repent and believe? These questions are worthy of our consideration. We must search our hearts and learn what they are like. God knows how wicked they are and He knows what they long for. The King is merciful. May we be like that second criminal who hung upon the cross and was made humble, honest, contrite, repentant, and saved by King Jesus. You see, here we find this vivid portrait of Christ's reign and Christ's redeemed. Those who are redeemed must come under the kingship of Christ. They must serve their sentence. They must carry their crosses they must know that they are condemned criminals. And yes, they must be repentant. 
Hardly any other place in Scripture is given such a vivid, are we given such a vivid illustration of this fundamental doctrine of repentance. If we were to come under the reign of King Jesus, then we must prove ourselves to practice repentance. At the start of Christ's ministry, he went about proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and believe. And here at the end of his earthly ministry, we are given a vivid portrait of what this looks like. First, notice that the repentant criminal was not indifferent about how the other criminal railed against Christ. He could not remain silent. He was too close to death, too near to Christ. And the moment was too weighty to ignore. And so he confronted him and he said, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? If a repentant heart is to be practiced, we must fear God. And if we are to fear God, then we must not remain silent. We must show humility and honesty and contrition. But also notice how this repentant criminal was not oblivious of the state of his own soul. He knew that he was worthy to be condemned. In verse 41, he says, We are receiving the due reward for our deeds. Without the knowledge of the state of our souls, there is no knowledge of the goodness of God. We must search our hearts that we might be repentant. Moreover, that we might enjoy the goodness of God. If we wish to turn to Christ, then we must know what we are turning away from. Next week begins Advent. And one of my favorite colics, one of my favorite prayers is the first week of Advent. We are told to cast off the works of darkness and to put on the armor of light. Taken straight out of Scripture. And I remember powerfully encountering God in 1999, having my heart set ablaze with a love for my Savior and my Lord, my King. I remember promising Him that I would serve Him for the rest of my life. And I've often reflected upon these audacious promises, this audacious vow that I made to God then. You see, little did I know what would be required of me. Little did I know of the cross that I would bear. Little did I know of the humiliation that I would have to endure. Little did I know of the courage that I would have to have. But this repentant criminal that we see here in our passage, sought not after moralism. He sought not after works of righteousness. He sought not even after being a devoted servant. No, he was allured by the power of the love of King Jesus. This is how we fulfill our vows and our promises. It is by the love of Christ. That is how we are proved to be repentant. We must see him on the cross, not just as the ultimate servant. We must see him also as the ultimate king. And then, thirdly, we see the repentant criminal was not silent 
about Christ's character. No, he provided an open confession of Christ's innocence. He says that this man has done nothing wrong. If we are to get repentance right, then we must honor, commend, and adore the righteousness of Christ. Fourthly, we see that this repentant criminal did not act arbitrarily, timidly, or even fearfully, but acted with a lively faith that Jesus Christ not only had the power to save him, but he had the will to save him. Think of how audacious this is. Here, this repentant criminal turned to the one who was being crucified. He called him God, and he believed that he had a kingdom. You see, repentance walks by faith, not by sight. Fifthly, the repentant criminal did not remain silent as one without hope, but prayed as he hung upon the cross and asked Christ to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. Those who are redeemed and repentant are those who have a relationship with the King of Kings. We must converse and commune with him if we wish to be saved. We must have a relationship with him. If we be repentant, we must have a relationship with him. We must pray to him and plead that he remember us when he comes into his kingdom. And then lastly, notice how this repentant criminal did not ask for a great reward, but only that he be remembered by Christ. Such humility and contrition. What are you asking Christ for? Is it for some great reward? But is it simply for his mercy? Just that he would remember you. If we are to endeavor to turn to Christ and to practice repentance, then we must endeavor to be like this repentant criminal who only asks Christ to remember him. Can you remember when Christ heard your plea and mercy? Your plea for mercy? For me, it was in early May of 1999. I prayed not that God saved me then. No, I simply prayed for God to take away the overwhelming fear that haunted me. I prayed that God would remember me. And he did. Two months later, I encountered God in such a way that set my heart ablaze. See, we are allured by the love of God. We must see him as the ultimate servant but we must also see him as the ultimate king. It was when I fell in love with the Lord that he drained me from the fear of death. And he filled me with a faith of life. That is where we get the strength to carry our crosses, to endure our humiliation, 
That's where we find the courage to stand. You see, when we get repentance right, it suddenly becomes not about repentance or even about us. It is not about the love of power or even if it is seemingly about salvation. No, it's about the power of the love in King Jesus. That is what it's about. It is about His kingly love, His powerful love. He is merciful and mighty to those who humbly repent. Regardless of how sinful we are, we don't need a lot of time to be made humble and repentant. This repentant criminal had only a few hours with Christ. So let us mark for ourselves what repentance looks like. Let us search our hearts. If we be repentant, then we must show it. We cannot claim that we have turned to Christ without carrying our crosses. We must act. We must respond to Christ with humility and contrition because our souls are condemned without Him. We must see Him as the righteous substitute. And we must trust in His power and His will to save. We must plead not for a great reward, but only for His merciful remembrance. And when we get repentance right, we will discover that we are no longer the subject of our endeavor. He is. It's no longer our repentance that concerns our attention, but Him and His love. It is no longer about the love of power, but the power of the love in King Jesus. At the end of his well-acclaimed book on the English reformer Thomas Cramner, Ashley Knoll describes this point well. He writes that Cranmer's life and legacy was not committed to himself or his personal interests, but to God's love. It's unconditional pardon, unlimited power, it's indwelling presence, it's inspiration of reciprocal love, it's often invisible purpose, and it's ultimately invincible plan to order all things right. You see, it's His love that makes us repentant. Do you see Christ on that cross? Do you see Christ enthroned as King? And do we see Christ as that repentant criminal saw Him? Do we see Him upon the cross as the one who was atoning and enthroning His reign in the everlasting, loving kingdom? It is not the love of power that saves us, but the power of King Jesus' love. So may we rest in His love with faith, repentance, and thanksgiving. For Christ is King. Amen.